With that said, please open up with me to our sermon text this morning, which comes once again today from the book of Jude. We will be looking today at verses 14 through 16. So hear now the word of the Lord, Jude, verses 14 to 16. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people, false teachers. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you this morning for your word to us. A word that was spoken long, long, long ago. The days before the global flood. And yet as they were spoken, Lord, and then recorded thousands of years later here by Jude, Lord, we know you had us in mind today as part of your people who would sit under these very words. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would make effective in our hearts what these words were intended to bring about here at Village Press in 2023, even as they were spoken thousands of years ago. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word to us. We pray it all in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we do arrive this morning in what is the final passage from Jude that deals with his denunciation of the false teachers. Now, we've said a lot about false teachers in our first sermons through the first 13 verses of this book. And I would encourage you, if you haven't heard some of those and you're interested, go back on our website. You could listen to those because they bring us, in many ways, to where we are this morning. Douglas Moo says about our verses here today, then, Jude caps his denunciation of the false teachers with a prophecy. And indeed, it is that prophecy that we're going to look at this morning. It is, of course, a very significant prophecy that has garnered lots of attention throughout the history of the church. In fact, I would imagine if any of y'all here at Village Press have read through the book of Jude before, and I were to have asked you one thing you remembered from the book of Jude, this would probably have been it. Isn't that the book where there's a prophecy from Enoch, that mysterious figure from way back in Genesis 5? Of course, that answer is yes. So I'll remind us again today that we have to beware going too deep down a rabbit hole regarding this prophecy, lest we miss the point Jude is making. However, with that said, I do believe there's some important aspects of what Jude does here that we need to give some attention to. Because it's this prophecy that transitions into verse 16, which gives us the final declaration about how we can tell who these false teachers really are. So with that said, let us dive into our two main points this morning. Point number one, prophecies against false teachers go back to the time before the flood. Prophecies against false teachers go back to the time before the flood. And point number two, it is easy to tell who is living to satisfy their own desires. It is easy to tell who is living to satisfy their own desires. 
So point number one, prophecies against false teachers go back to the time before the flood. We see this, of course, in verses 14 and 15. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so what do we do with this statement? Well, it's actually an incredibly important point to consider, so let me make a few comments to help us get our bearings. First, who is Enoch? Who is the man who uttered this prophecy? Well, we read about Enoch in Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24, which says, When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years, walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day, he disappeared because God took him. You see, the testimony of Scripture is that Enoch was in the seventh generation of humans on earth and that he walked in such close fellowship with the Lord that he did not actually experience death. Every other person in Genesis 5 died. That's actually part of the refrain of Genesis 5. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, but not so for Enoch. In fact, the only other person in all of creation who left this world to live with God without experiencing death was Elijah. Even Jesus himself experienced death. So Enoch is one of only two people in the history of the world to be taken into God's presence without experiencing death. So at a minimum, we see that Enoch was a very righteous man who walked in close fellowship with God and that at some level, his faithfulness to the Lord was passed down and held on to by his great-grandson Noah, whose responsibility was to shepherd humanity from the pre-flood world into the world we now know, which, by the way, in many ways, is a very different world indeed. Now, all of that is clear from a study in Genesis 5. But what about this quote from Jude? Well, we can say with certainty that this prophecy recorded here is also recorded for us in a book written thousands of years after Enoch's life called First Enoch. So we speak of the book of First Enoch as an intertestamental book, meaning a book written after the close of the Old Testament, but before the first advent of Jesus Christ. First Enoch was an important book for the Jews, although it was not considered even at that time to be inspired and authoritative on the same level with the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. So all this leads some theologians to say that Jude is actually quoting from First Enoch. And while there are some rabbit trails we could go down here that might not be helpful to our main point, there are some things we do need to address. So stick with me for a few more minutes while we dissect what's going on here. There are two important questions we must ask when we consider this quote. The first question that most people ask is to assume, note, assume that Jude is quoting from First Enoch. And on that assumption, they then ask the question, well, did Jude believe First Enoch to be inspired and authoritative? Because if so, 
then we have to do one of two things. If the book of Jude is the inspired word of God, and Jude believes that the entire book of 1 Enoch is inspired, then we have to include 1 Enoch in the scriptures. On the other hand, if we know that 1 Enoch cannot have been inspired by God because of other problems with the book, and Jude still believes that 1 Enoch is inspired, then we must reject Jude as inspired and authoritative scripture. Do you all see that? If Jude is claiming that 1 Enoch is inspired, then either we have to accept 1 Enoch as inspired and included in the Bible, or we have to reject Jude as inspired and remove it from the Bible. But neither of those things has happened in any branch of the true church, which shows us that something else must be going on here. And when we look closely at the text, it becomes pretty clear. Simon Kistemacher gets it just right when he says, the critical fact that should be observed is that Jude never cites First Enoch in a manner that would indicate that he regards it as scripture, which is typically done by introducing it with, it is written. To say that another way, Jude does not lead into this quote by saying, it is written, and then go into the quote. So that is what we see the vast majority of times when New Testament authors cite scripture. They say, it is written. So Jude not doing this is a clue that he is not stating that the book of 1 Enoch is inspired, only that there is a real prophecy from the real Enoch that we should listen to. So we can say with absolute certainty that Jude does not think the book of 1 Enoch is inspired and authoritative, only that this particular prophecy is something that the real Enoch said and thus is inspired. So it's possible that Jude is, is quoting directly from 1 Enoch and intentionally doesn't use the phrase, it is written, to communicate that while this one verse is inspired, the rest of the book is not. So that is possible. But the other question we have to ask, which is actually a question to be considered before the one we just mentioned, is this. Is Jude even quoting from 1 Enoch at all? Or is he relaying something that has been passed down orally from generation to generation. And when we ask this question, I believe everything becomes clear and it fits with what many theologians throughout the history of the church have traditionally believed. It is quite likely that this prophecy from Enoch, delivered hundreds of years before the global flood, was passed on to Enoch's son, Methuselah, and to his son, Lamech, and to his son, Noah, who carried this prophecy forward into the post-flood world. And then generation after generation, this prophecy was passed down. And if so, then, if this is the case, we would have a real testimony from Enoch himself that the Lord preserved through the generations that then ended up in two places. First, the author of First Enoch took that prophecy and built an entire book off of it, including things that were clearly not inspired. And Jude also took that prophecy and uses it here in his epistle that we are reading this morning. And that is what I believe is happening. So think of it this way, to give just kind of an illustration to grasp this. In 2012, there was a movie that came out based on a book titled Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Now, I shared with Marianne, I was saying this, and I've not seen this movie or this book, so I am not saying that it is an appropriate thing to watch or read. In fact, it probably is not. But I think it's a helpful illustration because this book, 
and its subsequent movie actually wove in real historical facts and quotes from Abraham Lincoln's life in a way that then built a supernatural story of fiction. So if I stood up here today and quoted a real Abraham Lincoln quote that was also quoted in that movie, would y'all believe when you left here today that I thought Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter was real history? Of course you would not, right? You would know that both the author of the book and myself were pulling from the same real historical accounts, but that I was not quoting the movie, just the direct source himself. And it's the same here, I believe. Both the author of 1st Enoch and Jude himself are pulling from the same authentic source, Enoch, and yet Jude is not quoting from the book of 1st Enoch itself. This is the position that John Calvin takes when he says, I rather think this prophecy was unwritten than that it was taken from an apocryphal book, for it may have been delivered down by memory to posterity by the ancients. J. Adams echoes this sentiment when he says, where Jude obtained this information about Enoch's prediction is not known. There is an apocryphal book called First Enoch where similar things are said, but it's highly unlikely that Jude is quoting it. It's more likely that both writers refer to some lost source. At any rate, Enoch prophesied about these ungodly persons. Now, I know we spent some time on this, but here's why that's important. Jude is not picking up on some later book where this just became a thought. It is important to Jude when he is talking about these false teachers and the prophecies about what will happen, that he is able to go as far back as he can. In fact, it's likely this goes back to the days of Adam because Adam lived his final 308 years on earth at the same time as Enoch. Enoch only lived 57 years after the death of Adam, before he was taken up. So you see, this is what Jude is doing. Should we be surprised by the fact that there are ungodly false teachers in our churches today? Of course not. There were ungodly false teachers even, even before God brought a globally destructive flood. And that will continue until the day when Jesus returns. And on the day he returns, the Lord will come with his ten thousands of angels to bring judgment upon all those who have remained in their ungodly living, denying the body and blood of Christ. So we can be certain that these false teachings will one day be shown for what they are on the day the Lord returns. And no matter how large a following these false teachings in the church may get, how massive an impact it may look like they're having, we can be certain that on the day Christ returns, all will be shown for what it was, and this type of judgment will be brought about specifically against these false teachers. And in the meantime, it will always be righteous and holy men and women like Enoch who will remind the world of these certain judgments despite the fact that they will be hated and harmed for their teachings. Which leads to our second point. Point number two. It's easy to tell who is living to satisfy their own desires. We see this in verse 16. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. In many ways, this is the crescendo of Jude's whole point he has been making 
in the first 16 verses about the false teachers. It is a wonderful summation statement that we need to take seriously. The essence of the statement is that these false teachers are living only to satisfy their desires. Not to build up the true church of Jesus Christ, not to help other people to truly become more righteous and holy. Their sole desire is to live according to their own desires, to satisfy their desires. And that is evident because they grumble, they complain, they boast, and they flatter. That is quite the fourfold indictment of what people are like who live only to satisfy their own desires. Jay Adams calls this desire-driven living. That is, that we are so driven by our de fleshly desires that we actually interpret life in this world based on the single question of whether or not our desires are being met. And desire-driven living begins to morph into our desires becoming needs. So we begin to express our desires with the, the preface, I need, right? I need to have my desires met. And when they are not, I grumble. I need to have my desires met. And when they are not, I complain. When they are met, I boast. And we begin to believe that the best way for us to have our desires met is by flattering and buttering other people up so that we get from them what we desire from them. It dehumanizes them because we see them simply as someone to fulfill our desires instead of us looking to love and serve them. Brothers and sisters, let me ask y'all, are you guilty at times of desire-driven living? I am sure that for all of us, that answer is yes. We have to ask ourselves, what things in our lives have become needs that are built off of our own desires? Maybe it's the desire for praise, the desire for comfort, the desire for financial stability, the desire for everyone else to live life the way you want life lived. And think about that one for a moment. You see, we begin to become arrogant and condescending in the way we offer help because behind our advice to other people is us simply trying to get them to live life the way we think they ought to live life. There's a problem with that, isn't there? The problem is that life is not to be lived according to our standards of living. No one can do life the way we think life ought to be done better than we can. So it always leaves us grumbling and complaining against other people. It leads us to flatter them, to get them to do what we want, and then to have arrogant boasting about our success in living life the way we think it ought to be lived. And yet, who are we even to say the way life ought to be lived in and of our own wisdom? But there is someone much greater than us, someone much more in control than we are, someone who knows which desires in our hearts are misguided, and which desires in our hearts might be good, but are attaching to the wrong things. For instance, is it wrong to desire comfort? Well, it is wrong if the seeking for comfort is what is primary in your mind, and everything else in life is serving your, fulfilling your desire for comfort. But it's not wrong if you simply want the comfort of the Holy Spirit even if that means suffering and feeling uncomfortable at times in life to experience the comfort of the Spirit. You see, this is a moment-by-moment -moment living. 
And if we begin shepherding ourselves, like we saw last week, then we become the ultimate authority of our, li- of our lives. And even the Word of God ends up becoming subservient to our desires, even if we admit that the Bible should have a place there. These false teachers in Jude's day are truly seeing life through this desire-driven lens. And again, their primary desire is what is subservient to everything else in the context of this book is their desire to satisfy their sexual lusts. And in particular, we would see what is consistent with what we would say the LGBTQ community today is what is centrally in mind here in the book of Jude. And we said that a number of times in our sermon series so far, but I want to add just one more way of of looking at that here so that we don't miss a more broad application for all of us. We need to remember that just getting married as man and woman does not rid us of all our sexual lusts. Many husbands believe that once they get married, their wives become their own personal objects to use in whatever way they see fit to pursue the depths of the lusts of their hearts. And actually begin to believe that lusts aren't lusts if they are played out in the marriage bed. But nothing could be further from the truth. So husbands, how do you know if you're guilty of this? Well, do you grumble or complain even just inwardly if your wife is not fulfilling the desires of your heart? Do you flatter and coerce your wife to simply get her to satisfy your lusts? If so, then you are actively sinning against your wife whether she knows it or not. And you are actually setting up an entire culture of desire-driven living in your whole household, whether you know it or not. Now, we live in a world that is truly desire-driven living. And Enoch has laid out for us what the fruit of that desire-driven living will be. It is so heinous and so insidious that when Jesus returns, He will bring his ten thousands of holy angels to execute judgment on all those who live this life to merely satisfy their own animalistic desires. And here is what we want to see. Here's what we as Christians want to take away from this. That is not what we were taught when we came to Christ. You were not taught that the desires of your heart should be what rules your life. You were taught that the desires of your heart were so sinful that Christ had to die to deliver you from them. And as such, you are not to live life as grumblers or complainers in attempts to see your desires met. You are not to boast and flatter or coerce others to give you what you want. You are to lay down all those self-driven motives at the foot of the cross and begin to gloriously see real transformation play out in your heart before your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is freedom. That is gospel-driven freedom. And that is what is being laid out as an invitation for us all to receive today. And here's the danger of these false teachers. We see one passage in the book of Numbers where the great leader Moses himself turns in to a grumbler and a complainer. He turns in to a desire-driven man for a moment. It's Numbers chapter 11. That chapter begins with a select few on the outskirts of the camp 
beginning to grumble and complain because they are not having their desires for the food they crave in Egypt to be met. And in response to that, that grumbling and complaining spreads all the way through the entire nation of Israel. And before you know it, the whole nation of Israel is grumbling and complaining before Moses. And Moses then succumbs and he turns to the Lord. You go read this passage, you see the the word I or me dozens of times in just a few verses. Moses grumbling and complaining, Lord, just take me if this is who you're going to give me, right? What has happened there? Well, we see false teachers are so dangerous because that grumbling spreads, that complaining spreads. It doesn't take much for any of us to revert back to desire-driven living. Grumbling is a great contagion in the church. Complaining is a great contagion in the church. Boasting and flattering are great contagions in the church. Not because they are attractive. They are not. When we see them, they are not attractive to us. And yet, even as we observe they're not attractive, they begin to do something in our heart. Why is that? Because they are contagious since they appeal to the parts of us that so quickly descend back into desire-driven living. So all of us in here have lots we can learn and turn over to the Lord today. We are not often aware of what desires in our hearts are driving us. If I was to ask you all that, that's kind of a hard thing to answer. But we are able to see from Jude where those things emerge. We are able to see the areas where we grumble. We are able to see the areas where we complain. We are able to see the areas where we boast and flatter. And what Jude is telling us is that wherever we see those things, the root cause is actually some desire deep in our heart that has become the driving force of our life that needs to be laid at the foot of the cross. So let me encourage all of us in this way. Husbands and wives, take some time today to talk with your spouse about what desires in your heart may be driving your living. Parents, make sure you take some time to talk with your children, not necessarily on the level of grumbling, complaining, boasting, or flattery, but to really get at the heart of what desires are behind them doing that and begin to elevate those desires. Single people, make sure you connect with someone else in the church this week to talk about what areas of your life that desires are driving your living. And know that as you're doing this, this is a wonderful chance to repent from the heart, to thank God for showing you those things, and to know that you are actually beginning to pull up from the root those things that cause you to grumble or complain or boast or flatter. And in light of our baptism today, what a wonderful thing we get to see. God has always included children and infants as part of his covenant community. In no way is the New Testament church more restrictive than the Old Testament church. Children are absolutely to be included in God's covenant community, and our text here shows us why. Chandler and Eliana, like every other parent in this room, you know already that your child is a desire-driven human, just like all parents in here can observe. But by virtue of being baptized into the covenant community of God's people, Clay is now a part of a community that is different. A community that is not desire-driven, but that is gospel-driven. And your charge as parents then is to patiently, 
joyfully, carefully, and perseveringly to work with clay, not primarily at the levels of his grumbling or complaining or boasting or flattery, for even a baby seems to learn in that first year how to smile at you just to get the comfort they deserve, right? Or they think they deserve. Your charge then is to work with clay at the desire level of his heart. And you now have a church who has covenanted before God with you, and more importantly, with Clay himself, to make sure that we are steadfastly praying and supporting him in that endeavor. And Village Press, we can do nothing better for Clay and for all the covenant children at this church than to make sure that this church is one constantly being freed of desire-driven living. That is one of the things that our children need the most, to be surrounded by a group of believers of whom they are truly a part of, that are still working out this aspect of their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God's work in us that is bringing these things to pass. And we look forward to the day when Clay will be able to make that authentic profession of faith and to come to the Lord's table, the day when he will be able to feed on the body and blood of Jesus Christ desiring more than anything else to lay down his fleshly desires and live life solely in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel-driven living. So as we finish, let me say, that is what is on the table for all of us in here this morning. The offer to lay down your desire-driven living, whatever it is, and when you do, you will be freed from that awful experience of grumbling, complaining, boasting, and flattering, things that just rob you of joy. So that when you repent of your desire-driven living and place your trust in Jesus Christ to deliver you from it, then you begin that totally transforming work of Christ day by day, moment by moment, from having to live in the fear of whether or not your desires will be met to getting to live in the mercy, peace, and love the three things Jude highlighted at the beginning of this verse that is meant to bring about the good news of the salvation of Christ into every part of your life. Something that we will talk, Lord willing, much more about next Sunday. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you this morning for your word to us. And Lord, we do confess that far too often we are desire-driven in our living. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us wisdom and clarity to be able to see where that happens, where that's going on. So Lord, help us to pay attention well to where we grumble, where we complain, where we boast, and where we flatter, and to get to the root of those things in our heart. We pray you would do that. And we do pray as a church and as parents in this church for us to be about that type of heart-changing work in our children much more than anything else. We thank you for your word. We pray your blessing upon the rest of the book of Jude in the coming weeks. We pray it all in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, with all that, we have our confession of sin this morning, which uh, comes really from so much of what we've seen in the first 16 verses of Jude. So um, if you would, please stand. We will corporately confess our sin, as is printed in the bulletin, have a hymn of response, an assurance of the gospel, a closing hymn, and then the benediction. So let us pray. Almighty God,
We come before you this morning as a people acknowledging how easily we can be fooled by false teachings. False teachings within the church and false teachings within our culture. We confess that there is something within us that wants to satisfy our own sinful desires. So we give too much of an ear to teachings that indulge them. We too can be grumblers, complainers, prideful, and flatterers. We are far too often guilty of desire-driven living. And ultimately, despite the sins of false teachers, our sins are our own. And we have been guilty of continuing to sin against you. Lord, we repent of our continued sins. We ask that you remove them from our hearts and guard us steadfastly against the desires to listen to false teachings. May you give us a deeper desire to know your word. And with your forgiveness, may you continue to bring transformation into our hearts. And so we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace to us through Christ Jesus. We rejoice that you are able, even still, to keep us from falling away. And we rejoice that you will indeed bring us with great joy into your glorious presence without a single fault. And we pray all of these things in the name of our mighty Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.